70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. I am Samuel Mukasedi Nsinga, a regular listener of KBS World Radio. I am sending this video message from a university campus in Nantes, France. Congratulations on KBS World Radio's 70 years of service. I believe you have been very successful in promoting Korea to the rest of the world. I also thank you for selecting me as one of your official monitors. I fell in love with Korea thanks to your channel. It was around 2012 or 2013 when I first caught a shortwave broadcast from KBS World Radio. I was only 9 or 10 years old. The fact that I could hear about Korea, the country of morning calm, in my home country of Cameroon, near the equator back then, is just amazing and beautiful. I wish the staff and the listeners of KBS World Radio all the best. See you. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Thursday, the 26th of October, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Hwan Jang-ho. The number of cattle farms with confirmed lumpy skin disease infections has continued to grow. The number has now reached 42 after the first case a week ago. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. This Sunday marks the one-year anniversary of the tragic Halloween crowd crush in Itaewon, which claimed the lives of 159 people. We'll discuss the continuing calls for answers from the victims' families, as well as the political disputes for our in-depth today. And coming up for Explore Korea, we discover the charms of the whole folk flea market. Let's begin Korea 24. The number of farms with confirmed lumpy skin disease infections has risen to 42 spreading even to Hwengsung, famed for its Hanu. Uh, KBS World Radio News Editor Koo Hee-jin joins us in the studio now to give us the latest on this alarming spread of cattle infliction, as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, jang So in a bid to clamp down on the spread of this disease, the government plans to secure 4 million doses of vaccine by the end of this month. But first, what can you tell us about the path of the infection? Well, authorities announced the new tally as of 2pm Thursday following the confirmation of four additional infections in the Gyeonggi and Gangwon provinces, including, as you mentioned, the county of Hwengsong. Since the nation's first LSD case was detected last Thursday, the virus has spread to a total of 42 cattle farms in 14 cities and counties across South Korea. Health officials plan to complete the inoculation of the cattle nationwide by 
by early November. And considering the three-week period for antibodies to form, authorities expect the situation to stabilise within next month. LSD is a virus transmitted by blood-feeding insects, including flies and mosquitoes, that does not affect humans and causes uh, fever and skin nodules with a fatality rate below 10%. And we will update our listeners on the latest on this infection in the days to come. Mm -hmm. Turning now to the continuing conflict in the Middle East. The Israeli military said on Thursday that it conducted a targeted raid in the northern Gaza Strip. Can you give us the latest? Well, foreign news outlets reported that the Israeli army said in a statement that the raid was part of the preparation for the next stages of combat in what has become the deadliest of five Gaza wars. The current conflict began on October 7th uh, after Hamas militants carried out a surprise attack on Israel, which in response vowed to destroy the militant group. The latest operation by Israeli forces appears to be the largest scale ground raid in Gaza by the Jewish state so far. The Israeli military spokesperson said on Thursday that the families of 206 people believed to have been captured by Hamas and taken to Gaza have been notified. Turning to security matters closer to home, the top diplomats of South Korea, the US and Japan issued a joint statement on Thursday condemning North Korea's provision of military equipment and munitions to Russia for its war in for its war against Ukraine. Can you tell us more? Well, Foreign Minister Park Jin, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Japanese Foreign Minister Yoko uh, Kamikawa said uh, such weapon deliveries will significantly increase the human toll of Moscow's war of aggression, uh, casting concern over Russia, uh, offering military assistance to advance the North's military capabilities. In return, the ministers said they are remaining vi- uh, vigilant for any provision of materials from Russia. They then emphasised that arms transfers to or from the North and items related to the regime's weapons of mass destruction, ballistic missile or conventional weapons of, uh, program will uh, would uh, violate multiple UN Security Council resolutions, which Russia itself voted for. The ministers expressed particular concern about the transfer of nuclear or ballistic missile-related uh, technology from Moscow to Pyongyang, which would de- jeopardize efforts to prevent the destabilization of regional security, uh, while also threatening peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula and beyond. Meanwhile, the South Korean National Spy Agency said it has detected attempts by a North Korean hacking group to create and disseminate an imposter electronic transaction app used by over 20 million South Koreans. Can you elaborate? Well, in a press release on Thursday, the National uh, Intelligence Service, or NIS, said the fraudulent app had a very similar icon and the same interface and function as the original, warning that once infected with malware, all personal information on the device would be leaked. The agency said it has shared related information with domestic and overseas security firms to prevent the imposter's uh, distribution and steps have been taken, such as antivirus uh, updates. The NIS advised users to exercise caution when installing apps from third-party vendors through links received by emails or text messages. Shifting gears, we're approaching the one-year anniversary of the Itaewon tragedy in which 159 people died in a crowd surge during Halloween weekend. 
and a new crowd management system will be put into effect as the government tries to ensure such a tragedy never happens again. Can you tell us more? Well, the safety ministry announced on Thursday that the system will undergo a trial run from Friday to December 15th using mobile data to uh, track and uh, crowd density along with spatial information by area to predict overcrowding. The system allows the local government and its situation room to determine the level of crowd density in the region through a colour-coded map. The 100 priority management areas selected to run the system were chosen through surveys, a consultation with uh, committees and the decision by the ministry to apply it in frequently crowded areas such as Itaewon and the Gimpo Gold subway line. In other news, the Justice Ministry announced on Thursday that it's gathering public opinion on a law seeking to restrict the residence of certain sex offenders based on the so-called Jessica Law in the US. Can you tell us more? Well, the Ministry of Justice said on Thursday that it is issuing a legislative notice to gather public opinion on a law restricting the residence of high-risk sex offenders, dubbed the Korean Jessica's Law. The legislation will allow the government to assign designated residences to sex offenders who were sentenced to more than 10 years in prison for sex crimes against children under the age of 13 or have committed more than three sex crimes are, uh, uh, that are subject to the law. The bill is inspired by Jessica's Law, a U.S. law uh, enforced in 39 states that restricts child uh, sex offenders from uh, residing within 305 to 610 metres from schools and other related facilities after being released from prison. There's concerns, though, that the bill runs afoul of the Constitution by imposing a second punishment as it grants the government the authority to require high-risk sex offenders to reside in facilities operated by the state or local government. Can you elaborate on these concerns? Well... Initially, the Ministry of Justice reviewed the me- a method of applying residence restriction based on distance from certain facilities like uh, kindergartens and schools, but concerns were raised due to the country's limited geographical space and high population density in metropolitan areas. Uh, even if the law passes in the National Assembly, however, it may face a legal challenge over constitutionality for applying restrictions on convicted criminals who have completed their court-mandated sentence and would therefore be equivalent to, as you said, a double punishment. The law will be submitted to the State Council after review by the Ministry of Government uh, Legislation uh, next month. And finally, police have booked the leader of the former K-pop boy band Big Bang, G-Dragon, on charges of illegal drug use. What can you tell us? Well, the Incheon Metropolitan Police said on Wednesday that they booked the singer, whose real name is Kwon Ji-yong, uh, without physical detention for violating the narcotics law. The police were quick to add, however, that Kwon's case is unrelated to the drug case involving actor Lee Sun-gyun, who was booked on the same charges earlier on Monday. Monday. Kwon came under police investigation back in 2011 on suspicion of using marijuana, but the charges were ultimately dropped. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you.
This Sunday will mark one year since that harrowing night in Itaewon, where a deadly crowd crush led to the tragic deaths of 159 Halloween partygoers. The image of bodies piled on top of each other has been burned. Into people's memories here in Korea, none more so than the 300 or so survivors who continue to grapple with post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and other mental health challenges. This struggle continues, extends to the families of both the deceased and the survivors, who are now preparing for the first anniversary memorial ceremony. Meanwhile, the year-long political battle surrounding the crisis persists. The bereaved families are steadfast in their demand for answers from the government, while the ruling People Power Party and the main opposition Democratic Party remain in a contentious deadlock over the matter. To look back on the incident and where we are a year on, we have joining us on the line now our regular political commentators. First, we have affiliate professor Kim Byung-ju from the. Division of International Studies at the Hangul University of Foreign Studies, Professor Kim. Hello. Hello. And we also have Law Professor Cho Hee Kyung from Hongik University as well. Professor Cho, hello to you too. Hello. So it's been one year since the terrible incident, but still the families of the victims are calling for more answers. Throughout the past year, the civic group representing the victims' families by the name of the 1029 Itaewon Disaster Bereaved Families and Survivors Organization has been carrying out periodic protests, requesting the government for a more detailed and thorough set of answers. Recently, their legal representatives called for a more comprehensive investigation. Professor Chaw, we would hope that a year on, that there would be more closure on what happened that terrible night, or at least a movement towards closure. But do you think the government's investigation so far has? Sufficiently revealed everything, and if not, what further efforts do you think need to be made? I think the main problem is that the government's current investigation is no way close to revealing sufficiently everything. Uh, to me, there are at least three issues. The ongoing investigations are focused on criminal liability, first of all. Rather than focusing on a, a comprehensive inquiry as to what actually went wrong and trying to establish objective facts, second issue is that because it's mainly a criminal investigation, this targets specific individuals in particular, uh, and that makes it very difficult to actually establish objective truths because. The individuals who are accused have to defend themselves, and you know, to the extent that they, you know, fully engage their right of self-defense and even try to not disclose what should be disclosed. And third is that the investigation is conducted by the same force uh, that actually includes members who are subject of the investigation, i.e., the police force. And so, what should have happened really, you know, immediately after a man-made disaster like this, is to actually establish an independent commission uh, or a committee that is given full power to investigate thoroughly and properly, and not just limited to criminal responsibility. But that actually hasn't happened yet. 
Professor Kim, what have you made of the government's investigations uh, into the Itaewon crowd crush and the calls by the victims' families uh, for more answers? To talk about investigation, let me take a brief detour to get to that, uh, my own personal experience. A year ago, I still have a clear memory. Uh, there's nothing tragic happening in my uh, immediate family, but 5 a.m., phone rang. Uh, I got this phone call from my mother calling from Busan, asking us whether uh, everybody's safe. Uh, 5 a.m. in the morning, she heard through the radio news, terrible thing was happening in Itaewon. And I have three daughters, three daughters in their age of 20, uh, in, in their 20s. And uh, so, you know, there's enough reason to make this phone call uh, for my mother's side uh, in her 90s at that time. So uh, I still have clear remember, um, you know, memory of what happened that morning. Uh, the, uh, you know, luckily, everybody in my family was at home, so no one got hurt. But what I'm saying is, you know, these people who lost their loved ones that morning, uh, I think I can imagine how that may feel. I can never uh, share the same kind of pain and suffering. And uh, they they say, and I fully agree, the biggest pain and suffering one can have in life is losing your children. So this is terrible, terrible uh, case. And, you know, it goes beyond our words. Having said that, investigation. Uh, I like to compare this briefly with the case of Seoul disaster, Seoul tragedy. In that case, when the this ferry sank, there was, uh, uh, first of all, a school that made a decision to send these high school kids on on trip on a ship. There was a ferry operator company that was carrying these children, uh, you know, to Jeju Island. There was a, there was a coast guard. Uh, that were responsible for rescuing these children. That was several crisis, uh, several disastrous case. And so these entities I mentioned had to be investigated. Now, Itaewon's case, this happened on a street, open space, a very narrow alley, but still it was open space. And these were individuals who were there, uh, and uh, face this tragic, tragic case. I'm just, and then after that, rescue efforts went on and everybody watched how rescue was being made. So what I'm saying is, unlike Sewell's case, the, m- most of these things, almost 100% of these things happen in an open space while people were watching. So I have, in my mind, there's a fundamental question about investigation. Uh, the government had spent this much time, investigators have this much time on this, and I wonder uh, what really is that much there uh, behind what we have learned so far for the past year. So I have individually have a fundamental question about this, this issue of investigation altogether. May I add one thing there? Sure. The uh, question... Professor Cho, I mean, yeah. who do you think should be held responsible then what well, well do, that's what, what the, the victims... investigation should that's what the investigation should establish now if this were the first time that crowd gathered in Itaewon for halloween in such numbers then i might say say well the questions that professor kim is raising has some logic behind it but this is this was not the first time that, that you know, such crowd gathered. In fact, in previous years, 
every year from 2014 until until 2019, bigger numbers gathered in Itaewon than uh, the numbers that were there last year. And such this crush disaster did not happen because there was police force directing foot traffic and motor vehicle traffic. There were uh, lanes being controlled and, you know, crowd flow being directed. Now, why weren't those controls in place on that night last year? The thing is, this was on the news from a week before that 100,000 people are expected in Itaewon for Halloween, first time since COVID restrictions have, have been lifted. The police chief of the Seoul Met Police is actually on the record warning police officers saying that you need to plan and prepare for the Halloween uh, this year because lots of people are expected. And yet on the night in question, not even one single police mobile unit was sent to Itaewon. So why was that the case? Everybody knew that people were going to come to Itaewon. Why wasn't there control? And this kind of disaster, as Professor Kim says, in open space like this cannot really be prevented unless you plan for it. If it ha happens, there's too little time to do rescue. So the big question is, why wasn't there sufficient planning and preparation when everybody knew that there was going to be a huge cr crowd in Itaewon? That's the big question, and that hasn't been answered. Professor Kim, you said this is a situation that happened in an open space. So it is a challenging situation when it comes to uh, finding uh, those responsible, but shouldn't there be more investigation into finding that answer to assessing uh, whether more could have been done, whether police and other forces might have been more uh, liable? Uh, whether more could have been done and what should have been done, uh, I think we have so far spent a year finding those out, and I think uh, the actions are being taken in order to address those questions. And police chief, uh, you know, government officials, what they have done wrong, I think we spent a year to find out, and I think we are holding them responsible under the existing law and regulations. And so uh, I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, you know, those who had a, made a mistake and uh, didn't carry on their task and everything, uh, you know, being prosecuted, being investigated and prosecuted, I'm, I'm all for it. All I'm saying is, uh, I, I believe we have spent a year on this thing, on this case that happened on an open space. There is a limit to which what we can find out. And I, I believe we have found out everything. We have found out who's responsible. We have taken actions. The whole effort now should be focused on uh, prevention. Uh, preventing from this, uh, from preventing this one from happening again, and that I think should be the focus. What I'm against is any possibility, subconsciously, consciously, trying to. We do all have this guy's psychology. I did have that psychology when Seoul disaster happened. I wanted to find someone and crucify someone in order to address this this suffering, that pain that I had in my heart. And this is the same case. And we do all have shared this human psychology, you know, wanting to find someone to crucify. And I'm just wondering whether that kind of psychology is maybe play, being played out when we talk about still having to find someone responsible after a year of investigation, taking actions and uh, prosecuting people. So that's what I'm talking about. 
Today, we also wanted to talk a bit more about the impact that this incident has had on the political sphere, how it has played out in the political sphere as well. Uh, because over the last year, there has been a lot of uh, contentious disputes between the two uh, main political parties. Professor Chaw, can you walk us through how the incident uh, has played out in Korean politics? What are the points of disagreement and how do you assess them? Well, I think the main point of disagreement uh, is really on the passage of special act uh, regarding the disaster, one that would have established an independent investigation body uh, and uh, one that would have ensured participation of the, the victims and their families in the I- investigation uh, and to make sure that the, the investigation is actually carried out, not just by the, the police, but a separate uh, objective uh, third party. Now, I am not interested in crucifying anybody. I am interested in what actually went wrong and why our incredibly able police force failed to meet uh, these basic requirements that would be so obvious in uh, when such a big crowd is is expected. And uh, Professor Kims has said that in the past year, we have done the investigation and we are holding people who are responsible accountable. But that's actually not the case. Take the case of Kim Gwang-ho uh, as, as an example. He's the, the Seoul Metropolitan Police Chief. Uh, he is the one who is actually on the record having said, saying in a number of meetings with uh, high-level police officers to plan and prepare for the Halloween event in in Itaewon. And yet on the night in question, no mobile police unit was sent. Instead, 3,000 police officers and scores of mobile police units were sent to Yongsan near presidential office where there was a demonstration being held. And yet he hasn't been charged by the police, although the police force itself has sent a recommendation to the prosecution office for him to be charged. So there is a really big question uh, and suspicion that can help be, but be raised that uh, even the investigation and the outcome of the investigation is being influenced somehow by political considerations. Professor Kim, what do you make of that? What do you make of the political uh, implications that have come from uh, the incident? Uh, I don't... Well, yeah, political implications, yes, uh, there is something to be said about it. But uh, directly to that point that, that has been just stated, uh, you know, I never supported uh, public prosecutors on in this program. I, I'm a, a firm believer of uh, having to reform public prosecutor system here in Korea, uh, there, there are a lot of problems with the system, with the prosecutors themselves and everything. But that's a separate question. And uh, uh, we just uh, may need to believe that they're, they would, they're doing their job, uh, they're part of the system, and they're going with the, with the law. And over and beyond that, I have no comment and I have no knowledge to, to be able to make a comment on that. But on the political side, uh, what I've been advocating is this, this thing. That is, I uh, advocated the resignation of Minister of Interior and Public Safety, Sang Min, 
Uh, I made that argument before, not because, not necessarily because he made a, uh, you know, he did a wrongdoing in his job, but I thought that would be necessary as a moral responsibility, as someone who occupies a position to ensure public safety. And uh, that public safety was grossly violated then. So I thought he should take the moral responsibility and resign, but he chose not to do so. And he uh, was forced by the uh, National Assembly twice. One, once National Assembly issued a, uh, their stance urging president to fire him, that was not accepted. And then uh, National Assembly uh, made an act to impeach him, and that was rejected by the constitutional uh, court. Um, I thought, you know, the, on the political side, one thing that I really regret is that he did not resign, not because he, I believe he did anything wrong, as I said before, but, you know, he, that kind of resignation might have helped, um, you know, manage the political situation better, but presidential ha- uh, office and then the ruling party chose to fight against it. And I believe that was a mistake. And, and with his res- resignation, the overall political situation might have handled uh, better. And fewer people might have been talking about political background and political controversy behind this case. So I think personally believe there was an important political mistake that was made. And finally, we we are running out of time. We just wanted to ask one more question each. The authorities this Mm -hmm. year are going the extra mile to ensure that we don't see anything similar. This whole Metropolitan Police Agency announced that they have identified 16 locations in Seoul as potentially dangerous places uh, when they get overcrowded, and they've adopted new systems to try and tackle any uh, dangerous points. But understandably, there is also little mood for partying this year. Uh, as two university professors yourselves, I'm sure that you will have seen this mood firsthand uh, this year amongst your students. Professor Cho, it may be too soon to be talking about this, especially when the victims' families are still calling for more answers. But how does the nation try to move on from this tragedy? What lessons do you think have been learnt and what still needs to be learned? I think it will be difficult to move on uh, from this and we really should not move on from this unless we get some clear answers. And it's not a question, you know, it's beside the question whether you support the prosecution or not, but we cannot discuss the, you know, the accountability in this case without involving the prosecution because the prosecution, whether we like it or not, still has monopoly on indicting people for most crimes in this country. And so whether the prosecution actually decides to indict those people who are actually responsible and accountable is a huge part of having a closure and resolution on on this issue. Uh, As for for the nation, we need to to make sure uh, that that we can keep young people safe, that that our police operates uh, with common sense and, and logic and we need to uh, essentially continue to worry about this issue. It might take us not just one year or two years, but even a decade or two more, like the Hillsborough disaster or, or other similar examples around the world. But we cannot let it go until we have clear answers. Professor Kim, final thoughts. Uh, what does the nation 
do at this juncture? How do we try to continue to move on from this uh, tragedy? Going back to the very beginning of this program, as a father who has three daughters in their 20s, I can only imagine how much suffering this would be for the people who lost their loved ones. So keeping that in mind, I'm not saying we must move on. I'm just hoping that we could move on from here, learning clear lessons for public safety. And the lessons should not not only go to the government side and public authority side, but it also have to be borne by the citizens ourselves in terms of how we manage the situation, how we seek our safety, personal safety, and so on. So I think lessons should be borne um, both sides, public side and the private sector, you know, citizens, personal level as well. And I, I hope, I'm not saying once again, I'm not saying we must, but I'm just hoping that the country could go forward with clear lessons, painful lessons in our, in our heart and uh, make this country safe again. And uh, we know, you know, this uh, young people, their uh, street culture, uh, you know, street parties and so on, this kind of vibrant uh, culture, I hope it will get revived going beyond all this pain and the difficult tragedy that happened a year ago. We'll have to wrap it what, up what? there. Professor Cho and Professor Kim, we appreciate both your time and your thoughts uh, on this matter today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index shed 64.09 points, or 2.71% on Thursday, to close the day at 2,299.08. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ also fell, dropping 26.99 points, or 3.5%, to close at 743.85. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 10.31 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,361. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, Daniel Che, our news editor. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you again, jung Let's get straight into the first story. Decorated Olympic fencer Nam Hyun turned heads last week by announcing that she is set to tie the knot with a new partner only months after her divorce. But in a surprising turn of events, it's made official that the wedding's off and now her ex-fiancé is in the headlines for multiple reasons. Yes, this has been the talk of the nation today because of its many bizarre and shocking twists and turns. It's almost hard to know where to start, but uh, the most recent twist has been that Nan's now ex-fiancé, Chun Chung-jo, was in brief detention on charges of stalking. Right, this is the most recent one. On Thursday, slightly past 1 a.m., police detained John in front of the home of Nam's mother in Songnam, Gyeonggi province for pounding on the door and ringing the doorbell numerous times. Uh, reportedly, the 27-year-old was upset then that she could not accept Nan's decision to call off the wedding and break up. 
Police did release her on grounds that she is not a risk to flee or destroy evidence, but she'll be brought in for questioning again. Police imposed an emergency restriction banning Chun from being within a 100-meter radius of Nam and calling or texting her. The former Olympian will also be provided with a police-issued smartwatch so she can seek police help immediately in emergencies. Right, so this is the next level of the story. When news first broke of their relationship, there was a lot of questions raised, especially over the identity of Chun. What are some of the suspicions and allegations brought up against Chun? When Nam made the relationship official through an interview with a local monthly magazine on Monday, what initially stunned many was the age difference, uh, with Chun being in her 20s and Nam in her 40s, and that the announcement of a new relationship that's verging on marriage came just two months after she announced she has divorced her husband of 12 years, cyclist Kong Hyo-sok. After the interview introduced the new love of her life as a third-generation scion of a family-owned conglomerate, Layers upon layers of Chun's past were unveiled by the media and public. Some news outlets reported that Chun had been convicted of fraud several times, including swindling under the pretense of marriage, and that there were no affiliations to any family conglomerate. A police investigations concluded that Chun was legally a woman and not affiliated with any conglomerate. That's also what shocked a lot of people as well. Uh, yes, it seems Chan was in fact a woman, but uh, she had gone through gender reassignment surgery. And Nam revealed in an interview, though, that she was aware of this. There were other extraordinary elements of the story, including a pregnancy scare, even though it would not be physically possible. But uh, we should add that this is a developing story. Facts are still being discerned. So we should perhaps just take a step back before jumping to any conclusions. But it is a rather dramatic set of circumstances being played out under the public eye. Uh, for today, we'll leave it there and move on to our second story now. What do you have for us? The U.S. is reportedly moving to formally designate November 22nd of each year as Kimchi Day. According to the Museum of Korean American Heritage on Wednesday, a resolution to designate November 22nd as Kimchi Day has been sent to the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. Yes, for regular listeners of the show, this is going to start sounding familiar because we've previously reported uh, that uh, a handful of states had already recognised Kimchi Day and in the UK as well, not too long ago, the Royal Borough of Kingston-upon-Thames became the first in Europe to designate Kimchi Day. But this is now potentially a national designation if it goes through. Can you tell us more about uh, the process for it to be recognised? Sure thing, the U.S. House Oversight Committee plans to introduce Resolution H.R. 280 on December 6th without a formal vote. The initiative is a bipartisan effort with Congresswoman Young Kim, a Republican of Korean descent, being the primary sponsor, along with 14 other Republican, Demo- Republican and Democratic reps who jointly introduced the resolution. Some states, including California, Virginia and New York, are already celebrating the day. But this will be the first federal-level recognition of Kimchi Day in America if the resolution is adopted. Among other things, the resolution notes that in 2013, UNESCO recognized Kimjang or the traditional communal process of making kimchi on its representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. Right, so resolution to designate the day was first submitted last year, I understand, but it failed to get through the House then. However, many believe this is not likely to happen this time. Yes, this is the year Seoul and Washington mark the 70th anniversary of establishing bilateral alliance, also the 120th anniversary of the first Korean immigrants' arrival in the States. Getting the formal designation would be a way to express gratitude to the Korean community in the U.S. for its contributions. 
The resolution emphasizes the, nutri the nutritional value of kimchi as the globally recognized traditional fermented dish is rich in probiotics, vitamins, and various nutrients. And you see it more and more regularly in various dishes at numerous restaurants, clear proof of its growing popularity in the U.S. It's mentioned in so many gastronomy and mm. gourmet cooking-related contents these days. Indeed. Well, as you said, the resolution will be introduced in December, so it will be too late for this year, but perhaps next year, Kimchi Day will be celebrated nationally in the US. We'll see the resolution. We'll see if it does indeed pass. Uh, what's the last story that you have for us today? Well, this story, uh, if you've seen the clip, the first reaction is, this is fake. This has got to be some <laughs> CG or special effects. So a Korean teenager garnered global recognition as a masterful performer of a move called the slick back or juby slide, a dance move that gives the illusion of gliding on air. A TikTok clip of him executing the move surpassed 205 million views on Wednesday. Yes, this video has not just been trending here in Korea, but globally as well. Uh, thanks in part to this teenager's become the latest internet craze with even K-pop idols taking part. But he's garnered international fame because of his particularly smooth rendition of this dance, right? Yeah, it just looks unnatural. It looks... Floating uh, on air. Some people might, you know, get scared by this move. <laughs> uh, there have been many slick back clips uploaded online and uh, wild viewers, but the delivery of Lee Hyo Chul, a senior at Yongsan Middle School, stands head and shoulders above all others. The clip uploaded on his friend's account on October 16th took less than 10 days to reach that milestone. After watching the 10-second video, astounded viewers left messages including... That's not slick bag, that's floating. His friend, well aware of E's skills, just casually asked him to do it one more time so that he could capture it on camera after having dinner at a neighborhood restaurant, not anticipating what would happen after the clip was uploaded. I believe he held an interview with a popular YouTube channel in Korea to talk about his sudden fame over the weekend. Yes, uh, they do work quickly to reach the stars in the making. Uh, e claims to be as ordinary as they come, a bit introverted, but don't mind being in the spotlight. He says he has no big dreams just to grow up healthy and be a regular office worker <laughs> that contributes to society. Uh, he saw some clips of the move being performed on various online channels and fell in love with them, so he kept working on it. He wanted to imitate it and master it, and he believes he failed to imitate the move precisely, much less master it. Uh, but unintentionally, he put his own unique spin into the move and in the end, the result is this online sensation. Mm. He says he can't explain exactly what he's doing differently or incorrectly, but that it really takes a toll on his leg muscle to perform the move. Right, it doesn't look easy in the fact no, that not, at all. Uh, not many people have been able to copy it proves that as well. Well, it's good to hear that the fame has not overwhelmed him, and he's, I think, just given a little bit of joy at a time when we need a little bit of a distraction from everything that's going on in the world. OK, we'll wrap it up there for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, it's Explore Korea, a weekly segment where we look to discover more of Korea's cultural, historical and travel highlights. And we do that with the help of our special contributors, or explorers, as we like to call them. And this week, we have a new member joining our panel of explorers. Uh, joining us in the studio now, we have John Lee with us. John, hello. It's great to see you again. Jango, great to see you, and uh, you are being very generous by calling me an explorer. Thank you. <laughs> You make me feel strong. 
Right. Well, yes, uh, you are a new member of this uh, Explorer team. Mm. Uh, we had you on for career trending last time, of That's course, right. but uh, I'm really excited to welcome you to this segment as well. Oh, thanks. So, John, I understand that you have for us today a location that you wanted to introduce that is here in Seoul. Uh, Seoul is one of the largest cosmopolitan cities in the world, of course, and its history is long and complicated, and you went to a place that reflects a piece of that history, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not very often that we in this city that's just super modern, super busy, and very convenient have a chance to see a a piece of history, Mm -hmm. you know, or a large neighborhood. And there's this area called uh, Hwangak-dong. Now, that's just northeast of Dongdaemun. And that's the home to a place called the Seoul Folk Flea Market. Okay. Or the Seoul Pungmul Shijang, or the Hwanghak Pungmul Market. Okay. It's got a million names. But all you need to remember is the Seoul Folk Flea Market. And it's a great area where you can go buy trinkets. You can buy the weirdest things for your home, uh, for your body, you name it. It's been going on for decades. Right, so the Seoul Folk Flea Market. Say uh, that three times. <laughs> can you give us a bit more details? Uh, when is it open? And yeah, what can you find there? Yeah, you know, it's open every day except for Tuesday. Uh, it's open 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Now, the interesting thing is there's a second floor with a food court. All right, it's an right. old traditional food court. And it's open until 10 p.m. So that's three hours after the market closes. So one must wonder what goes on up there. Uh, yes, so the food court is open after it closes. So perhaps you can go there after you've done a bit of shopping. And then perhaps you might f- meet some local vendors there as well. Okay, and you said it was in uh, Hwangak-dong, That's right? right. So that's just northeast of Dongdaemun, as I said. And it's uh, really close to uh, Cheonggyecheon, the, the stream over there. And it was named so, actually, because I guess yellow cranes used to nest there. Mm. I mean, this is decades ago before development, of course. Mm. And so it was called uh, Huanghak, and Huang meaning yellow. Right. So Huanghak, Huanghak means yellow cranes, you're saying. So uh, how do we get there? So we can get there many different ways, actually. If you go to uh, the Shinsol Dong stop, you can take line one, which is the blue line, Line two, which is the green line, or you can go, if you're closer to line six, take that to Dongmyo Station. Mm. So Dongmyo Station is another place that's a legendary flea market, and we'll touch on that in just a little bit. Um, But it's like this really large area that's pretty accessible Mm. with great food, all kinds of stuff going on there. So now you've given us the bearings. Let's talk about this market. Uh, As you said, it's full of vintage items and old knickknacks and a lot of history there as well, mm. right? Yeah, so according to pungmul.or.kr, that's their official website, it started basically in the 50s, right after the Korean War, mm. at least in one form or, or in spirit. Mm. And, and you can imagine that uh, things were a little loose and and free at that time <laughs> because it was post-war, mm. right? So people were trying to get their lives back together. And apparently a lot of junk collectors started setting up shop right in this area. And people heard about it. Next thing you know, there's like 130 dealers selling everything that they had collected, bought, or built over the years. Wow, it's 130 dealers. Uh, That must mean that this market is, uh, as you said, known for its array of goods, all sorts. Uh, Mm. And it's also a great example of what local markets can be like, right? Yeah, you know, local markets... I would argue that uh, this Pungul Shijang, this Seoul Folk Flea Market, it was a very, very special place because during that time post-war, people had no agency. 
right? They had scarcely an identity. Mm. So to establish a place like this was wonderful for community, for agency identity, and it just gave people a sense of self. So it was super important to the neighborhood. Do you get that sort of feeling now, do you think, with this market? Do you think it still remains? You know, if you go on the weekend when there's a lot of people, I, I would say so. Mm. You just see a wide <laughs> array of people like uh, hipster kids, uh, foreign <laughs> tourists who found out about it, as well as old timers who have, you, you can tell they've been there for decades. Right. And it's just a wonderful mix, I think. Right. And you said that we can find all sorts there. Can you give us some examples? Well, uh, yeah, you can go find handmade crafts, wares of all kinds. Uh, actually, I'm wearing something right now. It's like a, it's a cheap old watch that right, I bought yeah. there. It's a lovely piece, right? Yeah, it looks great. And I found it for 50,001. So it's not, it's, you know, what, 35 bucks, 45 right. US. Mm. It's not an expensive watch, but it was built in the 70s or 80s. Mm. And um, uh, the man who runs this little shop also repairs watches. And I keep going back to him and he fixes it for 10 bucks. <laughs> and uh, I think we're buddies now. So it's almost like, uh, as you said, through this watch, it's almost like a time capsule. Uh, there's yeah. a, that kind of quality to this market as well, where you're kind of peering back into mm. uh, Korea's modern history, as well as just shopping for goods. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, I think we're going to have some of these photos uploaded on the website. Mm. Uh, there are going to be some photos of vintage radios. Right. You can find from the 40s and 50s. Mm. So you can only imagine that, Military personnel, you know, during the war, brought things with them from home uh, just for a sense of comfort, I suppose. Right. These are American soldiers. American soldiers. And I'm sure people from Europe and, and other countries that were involved. Mm. And there are some gorgeous, gorgeous European and American radio, radios built in the 50s. They had mm. to be. And when you look at them, you realize how how much design played such a, a huge role in the past. Sure. And how little it plays today. We'll have some photos up on our yeah. Instagram page, uh, KBS underscore Career 24 as well. Uh, we mentioned earlier how there are several names for this market, but yeah. actually there was also another name for this market originally, right? The best name is uh, Dokebi Market, <laughs> and Dokebi means goblin. Mm. So, Korean uh, traditional mythical creatures. That's right. That's why this market is so magical, man. <laughs> so apparently, back in the day, uh, you could go to one of these stalls in the flea market and say, this is exactly what I want. And the stall guy has nothing on his table and he pulls something out from under the table like magic. And he says, <laughs> you mean one of these? And you say, yes, I will take two. Take it and you walk away. Right. And that's why they called it the goblin market. Because yes. there was so much magic appearing whenever you, you went there. And of course, the subtext, the subtext is maybe they were under the table hidden for a reason. Right, of course, yes. And that is what defines so many cool cultures all around the world. Right, so it went from Tokibi Market, mm. but uh, it changed names, and uh, it changed as Seoul developed as well, right? Yeah, you know, uh, like any great story in, in Seoul or South Korea, uh, this is a tale of pivoting. It's a tale of being nimble and adjusting to the time. So as they got big, uh, they became threatened by Dongdimun, which had a lot of money being poured into it to develop mm. into what it is now, a major hub of shopping, right? So the flea market had to, to pivot to things like secondhand goods, repair shops, kind of what it is now. And it did really well for decades. But 
what is it, 1986, the Asian Games started, uh, uh, were, were starting here in Seoul, mm. near Jamshu or Songpagu. So the government wanted to take about, uh, what was it, uh, 100 shops or so from this flea market and move them to the Olympic Stadium area right. uh, to attract tourists during the games and afterwards. So our flea market was basically just emptied of all the goods. So it had to pivot again and reinvent itself mm. again. But it did because people realized this place had so much value. Yes. So thankfully, the market uh, has preserved. Mm. Uh, finally, now uh, we are... In autumn, we are in the fall, so why recommend this area now when there is so much going on in Seoul and Korea uh, at this time? Because the weather's lovely, everyone likes to go out at this uh, time, there's lots going on, but why would you recommend this market in particular? Because I'm an old man, I'm telling you to go. <laughs> and you'll like it. That's why. No, I mean... They were done. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of places to, to roam around, but, you know, going to an old neighborhood like this where you basically say, okay, I'm going to put my phone away. I'm going to get lost mm. and find some cute cafes, uh, restaurants, and have an experience that we don't get to do in our daily lives, especially in a city like Seoul that is just so modern and convenient just mm. about everywhere you go. And and honestly, this is the best time to see a place like that uh, because these places are disappearing and we don't have much time with them. Yes. So the summer's too hot and sweaty. Who wants to walk around? The winter's <laughs> too cold. So the autumn, what a perfect time of year to go and shop for things that you never knew you couldn't live without. You know, And everything is so dirt cheap there, too, mm. which is the, the, the magnificent thing about it. Right. So enjoy it uh, while we still can mm. and while it still feels uh, authentic as well. Uh, so once again, that was the Seoul Folk Flea Market. Uh, I think we've got a good idea of what this place is about and the kind of mood uh, that this place uh, brings as well mm. through your descriptions, John. Thank you for that. We're going to leave it there for our Explore crew this week. It's been great to have you with us, John, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. I hope so, Chang This is artist Tracy Lim. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've now come to Morning Edition Preview, our closing segment, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, we have joining us in the studio our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay, so what do you have for us first today? Well, I found an interesting article by Kim Hae-yeun that can be found in the weekend section of the Korea Herald. It's about a legal battle that has been going on for over a decade. The battle is over the ownership of a 14th century Bodhisattva statue. Well, it looks like the battle could be coming to an end soon, as the Supreme Court rules Thursday against a Korean Buddhist temple's ownership claim to the statue. Okay, before we find out 
why the court made this decision. Can you walk us through the events that led up to Thursday? Sure, but there is a lot of information, obviously a decade's worth. So <laughs> I don't think I can cover everything. Right. So make sure you read the article to get the whole picture. But yeah, in 2012, a Korean theft group stole the statue from Kanonji Temple in Nagasaki Prefecture, Japan, and brought it to Korea. Around a year later, following a joint investigation by the National Police Agency and the Cultural Heritage Administration, the group was caught and prosecuted. The Korean government confiscated the statue, and it has been at the National Institute of Cultural Heritage in Daejeon City ever since. Well, it seems like preparations were being made uh, uh, to send it back to Japan, but a Korean Buddhist temple called Busoksa filed for a temporary injunction to halt the statue's transfer. Okay, so why did the temple try to halt the transfer then? Because it says that Japanese pirates in the late Goryeo era initially plundered the temple and took the statue, so they claim it was theirs to begin with. The the injunction was approved by the Dejan District Court. Then in 2017, the Dejan Court ruled in favour of the temple's claim, citing historical documents and evidence which proved Japan's uh, pillage of Busoksa. There were appeals and battles over several years, and in February this year, the Dejan High Court overturned the ruling, saying that the Kanonji Temple had acquired the statue's legal ownership through continued possession, and the Supreme Court upheld the decision. Okay, what does continued possession mean in this case? So apparently under Japanese civil law, the ownership of a property can be acquired if the person possesses it peacefully and openly for a minimum of 20 years, even if the item originally didn't belong to them. Okay, interesting. So it's quite a controversial ruling in some ways. Uh, This statue then is going back to Japan, it looks like. I believe so, yes. Right. It's an interesting case nonetheless, Mm. but it also uh, sets an interesting precedent for future claims like this as well. Right, they so, had to use the law from two different countries as well, so it was a bit difficult. Exactly. For, so, But for more information, do check out tomorrow's Korea Herald. Yes. OK, let's continue on now to our next article. What else have you found in tomorrow's newspapers? So next is Lee Hyojin's article in the People section of the Korea Times. It's about a high school student who, earlier this month, won the gold medal at the Nationwide Vocational Skills Competition, which is hosted by the Ministry of Employment and Labour. Okay, so tell us more about this high schooler then. So his name is Yang Gun Mo, and he is 18 years old. His mother is Vietnamese, and his father is Korean. He is around. Uh, he and around 1,800 other people participated in the competition. Uh, there were different categories, and Yang entered the CAD category. CAD means computer aided design. Mm. He got the highest score out of all the other contestants in that category, which meant he won gold. And what it also means is that he is now able to represent Korea at the World Skills Competition. The article mentions that this is a vocational skills championship that is held every two years. And this time around, it will be held in Shanghai in 2026. Wow. So he must have been, of course... Over the moon when he was told he'd won gold. He was. He said that there were difficulties along the way, but he didn't give up. And that is why he won the medal. It's amazing that he has been able to do so many things despite the struggles in his life. Mm. Apparently, he has had to be the breadwinner of the family because his mum left home when he was in elementary school and his father suffers from alcoholism. Mm. So, yeah, congratulations to Yang and I wish him all the best for the future. Indeed, and to find out more about his story, check out tomorrow's Career Times. That's where we wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.
And that's where we wrap up our show today. Tomorrow is the last Friday of the month, which means we're taking our regular monthly break. In our place, we'll have a rerun of our Hangul Day special this year. Visit Korea riding the K-pop wave. So if you missed it the first time, you can listen tomorrow. In the meantime, Korea 24 will be back on Monday. So do join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great week. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.